You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. That's the first I've actually learned about the rubber chicken or the, uh, the, the giant cutout of my face. I had to confirm that that actually is a real thing. So that's fun. Maybe next week we'll just put it up here in the corner and if you don't like my sermon, you can throw stuff at it during the, during the sermon itself. Um, hey, one other thing to mention, um, and, and Mallory mentioned this as she was leading liturgy, but we had over 60 women gathered here in this room yesterday for our Women's Fall one-day gathering. Uh, heard, I was not there, of course, I guess, but um, heard it was a phenomenal time, um, that it's just really good connections, the, the ladies who spoke and shared about God's faithfulness in different seasons just did a phenomenal job. Um, so thanks to all of you who came. Uh, a special thanks uh, to Jory and to Mallory and to Alethea, uh, who really put a lot of hours and time into planning that event, uh, went really well um, yesterday. So um, grateful for, for that. Want to make sure we celebrated that today. Well, if you have Bibles, uh, we're in 1 Kings. We're actually going to start at the end of chapter 18 and then be in 1 Kings 19. So page 301 is where you'll find that on most of the, the Bibles underneath your, your seats. One of the things that I most appreciate about the Bible is its honesty about its heroes. So the scriptures paint the people of God as they really are. Sometimes faithful and sometimes unfaithful. Sometimes victorious and sometimes defeated. And sometimes we see the people of God in all of their strength that God is providing. And sometimes we see them in weakness. The heroes of our faith, every single one, save one, falter. And that actually gives you and I hope uh, because our faith falters. And in moments that, that we should be celebrating incredible works of God and things that God has done in our lives and in our past and present, we often instead find ourselves despairing and despondent. As we're going to see in today's text, soon after, tragically soon after, boldly standing for the one true God on top of Mount Carmel, after seeing the rain return and the drought come to an end, Elijah runs away. He flees. And as we witness him do this, it's going to force us to consider, what does faith look like when we're fleeing? How does God's grace meet us and pursue us when we're running away? And what does it actually mean to be people of faith after fleeing? So I invite you now to listen with open ears to this book that we love This is 1 Kings. I'm going to start in chapter 18, verse 41. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go up, eat and drink, for there is a sound of the rushing of rain. So Ahab went up to eat and to drink. And Elijah went up to the top of Mount Carmel. And he bowed himself down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, Go up now, look toward the sea. And he went up and looked and said, There is nothing. And he said, Go again, seven times. And at the seventh time, he said, Behold, a little cloud like a man's hand is rising from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, Prepare your chariot and go down, lest the rain stop you. And in a little while, the heavens grew black with clouds and wind, and there was a great rain. And Ahab rode and went to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he gathered up his garment and ran before Ahab to the entrance to Jezreel. Chapter 19. Ahab told Jezebel, that's Queen Jezebel, all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, saying, So may the gods do to me and more also, 
if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at, the, at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. There he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken the covenant, your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, and as God said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. Verse 19, so he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him, and he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother, and then I will follow you. And he, that is Elijah, said to him, go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. This is God's word. Let me pray for us this morning. Lord God, I ask now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. And we pray this through Christ. Amen. This, uh, this passage is framed by three different instances of running. And so we're going to talk uh, about each of those this morning. There's running ahead, there's running away, and there's running after. So running ahead, Elijah runs ahead of Ahab. There's running away, Elijah runs away from Jezebel. And then lastly, running after Elisha runs after Elijah. 
So first, let's talk about running ahead. After the God contest, we looked at that last week, after that's over, after the prophets of Baal are killed, there's still a really critical loose end that needs to be tied up. God actually needs to bring back the rain. That is, after all, what started this whole conflict, this confrontation, three and a half or so years earlier. And so Elijah now again climbs Mount Carmel, and he bows down, he puts his face between his knees. It's probably a combination of him praying and him being exhausted. And then he sends his servant to look out west over the Mediterranean Sea. Six times the servant sees nothing, but the seventh time, this small cloud. And so Elijah sends word to Ahab, hey Ahab, you better get a move on. Rain's coming. Rain's coming. Wouldn't want you to get the wheels of your chariot stuck in the mud as you're trying to get down the mountain and back, and back home. And then, as we read, the rain falls. The rain falls. God is not just the God who answers by fire. We saw that last week. He's also the God who answers by rain. He's not just the God of judgment, judging the idols and the idolaters of the world. He's the God of mercy. And so in his judgment, we read in places like Psalms and the prophet Isaiah, God will turn rivers into deserts. He will take things that are fruitful and fertile and he'll dry them up and make them infertile. But in his mercy, he's also the God who turns deserts into pools. And so after three devastating years, God brings an end to the drought and the famine. He brings the rain back. Now in the middle of this, kind of at the end of it, I guess, we get this really humorous, I think, instance in Elijah's life. So just imagine him for a moment this morning sitting on top of Mount Carmel and he was starting to watch Ahab ride his chariot down the mountain and begin to make his way across this, this massive plain to the east. It's maybe 15 miles or so from Mount Carmel to Jezreel, uh, where Ahab and Jezebel have a palace. That's where Ahab is, is heading. And at some point, as he's watching Ahab leave, the hand of the Lord comes upon him, and he hitches up his robe and just takes off. And Usain Bolt style runs ahead of Ahab and the chariots and the horses of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. I don't know if he did one of these at the end, like Usain Bolt does, but just takes off and smokes him. So this is the first running in this text. Elijah runs ahead of Ahab. And there's really only one reason for God to supernaturally empower Elijah to do this. You think about why does God work miraculously in the world? It's often redemptive. It's often like Jesus heals people. Why empower Elijah to run faster than Ahab? Here's the only reason to show God's complete and utter dominance over Baal and over Ahab. So so Ahab's team has already lost the God contest. And then God, not Baal, brought the rain back. But now, to show that God really wins in every respect, Elijah's going to outrun Ahab's chariot too. It's like saying, Ahab, you were wrong. You and your God are impotent. You're nothing. Also, I'm faster than you are. (laughs) So take that. And actually, so parents or aunts and uncles or babysitters, if you, if you work with young kids, here's a pro tip. If you ever just get sick and tired of letting your kids win, we do that a lot, right? We let our kids win. It's good for their self-esteem. If you ever just want to utterly obliterate them in a race, now you have a biblical story to go along with that. Just tell them, hey, we're going to play Elijah and Ahab. Give them a little bit of a head start. Give them a lot of a head start and then just smoke them down the stretch. And at the end, be like, this is an illustration. God wins. Daddy sometimes has to win and beat you to just show you that this is, a, this is how it works. The therapy bills are coming, I know. That's going <laughs> to give me some years. It's going to happen. 
As much as God displays his dominance, though, this also, as this is happening, it starts to expose a flaw in Elijah, namely this. He over-realizes the triumph of God. He thinks that after Mount Carmel, there's no possible way Baal worship could continue in Israel. He thinks it's done. He thinks that his hardest days as a prophet are in the rearview mirror, and we're going to find out he couldn't be more wrong. In every age, God's people are prone to over-realize God's kingdom. And that's especially true after some kind of victory, after some kind of spiritual high. We, we start to think that maybe heaven has arrived, that maybe we've now entered into the fullness and the perfection of God's kingdom, and that sin and its effects are, are no more. And in that sense, you and I can run ahead of God's timing and God's plan. We can attempt to, to claim things before their time. And rather than remaining sober-minded, we then become overconfident. We become arrogant with this kind of air of triumphalism. It makes us look really foolish sometimes. My favorite example is actually from some years back when I was living in Kansas City. And it was the winter. It was a snowy Sunday morning. And it was early at the time that churches were making the decision whether or not to hold their service that day or not. And so I had the news on. I was watching the updates flash across the screen. And one then came up that said, Church Triumphant World Overcomers. That was the name of this particular congregation. Close second for what we named our church. We just decided to go a little bit of a different direction. Church Triumphant World Overcomers. All services canceled. And I, like you, I laughed out loud in that moment. And I said, well, well which one is it? Like, are we, the, are we the church triumphant that overcomes the world? Or is the snow going to keep us home this morning? Which one? Far less humorous, though, our triumphalist view can really wound people, can really hurt other people. We, we tell people with cancer that if they just had enough faith, they'd be healed. We tell people that if they were really faithful to God, if they really cared enough, if they obeyed enough, they'd be rich, they'd be healthy, they'd be completely free from hardship and suffering in their life. So we need the hope of God's triumph without the bravado of triumphalism. Does that make sense? We need the hope of God's triumph without the bravado of triumphalism. We need to match our confidence in God's superiority, God's victory, with the humility and sobriety that prevents us from running ahead of his timing. He is the one true God. He is doing away with all idols and with all idolatry. He is doing away with sin and death itself, but not yet, not completely. And to the extent that we over-realize God's work and over-realize his kingdom, we set ourselves up for massive disillusionment and discouragement, as Elijah himself very soon finds out. So second, let's talk about running away. Running away. We find out here Jezebel actually was not on Mount Carmel. She wasn't there for the God contest. And so when Ahab gets to Jezreel and recounts what happened, he tells Jezebel, 450 of your prophets, all of them, uh, are now dead. Jezebel is furious. She's furious. It's actually a little-known historical fact. Uh, Jezebel uh, was the first female leader of a nonprofit organization. You'll get there. <laughs> no? Oh, 8.30 struggle with that one, too. Okay. Okay. All right. All right. Pray. I told the authority service, you can pray for my wife and kids. They have to deal with this all the time, not, not just on Sunday morning. You're getting there. You're still getting there. It's all right. There's a little low. Okay, okay. 
Jezebel, though, she promises to kill Elijah in 24 hours. And, and given her history that she's already killed some of Yahweh's prophets before, it's not an idle threat. And it's not surprising. We're not surprised when Je- Jezebel threatens Elijah. What is surprising, and it would be surprising to the original audience just like it is to us, is Elijah's fear. Though he has just been running ahead of Ahab, miraculously empowered all the way to Jezreel, he now immediately turns around and runs away. And he runs far away. Israel is in the northern northern kingdom. Beersheba is in the very southern part of the southern kingdom. It's about 120 miles away from where Elijah is. And then eventually he keeps going an additional 250 miles further south to Mount Horeb. So what happened? What happened? How did this great moment of victory so quickly become defeat? And after being the the human agent of God's incredible power, of God's superiority over an idol, over 450 prophets, over a king, how is Elijah now fleeing for his life at the threat of one queen, one person? Some of that is his over-realization. He he expected Baal worship to end, and it didn't. He expected Jezebel to cave like Ahab, and she didn't. But even more, this is a moment, and it's the first moment that we see of this in Elijah's life. It's the first moment we see this, where he takes his eyes off of God, and he becomes overwhelmed by his circumstances. And even after witnessing so much of this, he forgets who really has the power in Israel. So it's really notable here in this text that the phrase, the word of the Lord, or related phrases like the hand of the Lord, it's absent from the beginning of chapter 19. Unlike when we read in chapter 17, God sent Elijah into hiding, sent him to the Kareth brook. Here, there's no command from God. Elijah is running away this time. God's not sending him anywhere. He's running away, not only from Jezebel, but from God. In 1 Kings 19, there's a lot of parallels between Elijah and two other Old Testament prophets. Moses is one of them. We'll talk about that in a second. But also Jonah. Jonah. Like Jonah, Elijah tries to run from God. He flees to a faraway place. Like Jonah, Elijah is filled with self-pity. Like Jonah, he, he wants to control the story that God is writing through him. And when it goes differently than that, he asks that God would take away. He's so despairing and so depressed by that, he asks that God would take away his life. And like Jonah, God has to intervene to lead Elijah back. Though he is fleeing, though he is not standing firm in faith, God pursues Elijah. God shows him grace in the midst of his running away. So this messenger came from Jezebel, and that's what caused him to run away. God sends his own messenger. An angel meets him and ministers to him. And and instead of letting him die, like he was asking, God sustains Elijah's life with another miraculous provision of bread and water. And God gives him the strength to journey on, think about this, even though he's still going in the wrong direction, even though he keeps going south. See, though he's not supposed to be there, God is going to meet Elijah at Mount Horeb. God is going to meet him in the midst of his fear and his self-pity and his weariness, And so in order to bring about this encounter that Elijah needs, God is going to sustain his journey even when it's in the wrong direction. He's going to get him to where he's going to meet him. Even the most faith-filled and faithful among us fail and falter, and we act in faithless ways. 
And so actually being a a pastor in particular has immensely deepened my appreciation for how God deals with Elijah, how he treats him in this passage. Because like Elijah, different specifics certainly, but, but I know what it is to know better. I know what it's like to have seen the, the power and the provision of God. I know what it's like to experience incredibly high moments, faith-filled moments in my life, only to turn around and with tragic and alarming speed respond with fear and run away instead of more faith. One example of that is, is actually in church planting. Uh, what, what Greg and Alexis uh, are in the process of, of preparing for here. It takes a lot of faith to plant a church. It takes a lot of faith to, to not know if you're going to have people show up, not know if you're going to have money coming in that you can use to support yourself and your family. It takes a lot of faith. And yet, church planters, and we see this in the networks that we're a part of, and I see it in my own heart, when it seems like a new church might actually make it, that it might actually take and not close its doors within the first five minutes that it's open, church planters can so quickly become protective and defensive and close their hands really tightly around this church. And you can think about it this way. This church that would not have existed apart from the miraculous intervention and the grace of God all of a sudden becomes my church. All of a sudden becomes something that I have to, I have to do. I have to keep going. I have to sustain. The hope of this passage, even when we turn around and act in fear, is that God remains gracious, that he pursues us when we run away, and that in our fleeing, he meets us with fresh grace. Now for Elijah, as we read, that comes in a unique and a spectacular way. In over a millennia of prophets, he is one of only two to be met with a vision of God. He gets to see God. Mount Horeb is actually another name for Mount Sinai. And it's the mountain, it's the same mountain where a few centuries earlier, God revealed himself, showed himself to Moses and gave Israel the Ten Commandments. And so Elijah is not just like Jonah in this passage, he's also like Moses. And so maybe you picked up on some of the the parallels as I was reading earlier. Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness. How many days did it take Elijah to travel to Mount Horeb? 40. Should have only taken him 10 or 12 given that distance. It took him 40, but there's a parallel there. Moses hid in the cleft of the rock on Mount Sinai. Elijah is in a cave. And then just as he did with Moses, God passes by Elijah. God shows himself. Elijah gets to glimpse God and the glory of God. This time, God is not in the fire like he was on Mount Carmel. And nor is he in the earthquake, nor is he in the wind. He's in the low whisper. He's in the the still small voice. And what we see here is that as, as powerful as God is, as much as he will at times reveal himself in great acts of power, he is also gentle. He is both the God of heaven and earth, is both transcendent, he is both other and holy and completely and infinitely more powerful and glorious than his creation, including us, but he is also imminent. He comes near. He speaks gently with his people. So two big things for us to recognize from Elijah's running away and then his encounter with God. Two things for us to recognize. First, recognize the capacity for our self-pity to corrupt our perspective. Recognize the capacity of self-pity to corrupt our perspective. When Elijah first arrives at Mount Horeb, God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Why are you here? And Elijah's answer, hopefully it came through as we were reading it, 
is dripping in self-pity. I've done everything right, God. The people are evil. I'm the only one righteous, and I'm the only one left. I'm the only one. Now, no doubt, Elijah has been given a hard role, a hard lot. He was the only prophet of Yahweh standing on Mount Carmel against 450 prophets of Baal and a king. But he already knows in this moment, he's not the only one left. Obadiah was hiding away a hundred other prophets. And then God tells him here, he's preserved not just a hundred, but 7,000. 7,000 more. So I like to refer to this as an Elijah complex. An Elijah complex. It's kind of like a hero martyr complex, just with even more self-pity and more self-righteousness mixed in. Everybody else, God, is faithless. I'm the only one left. And note how much this has corrupted Elijah's perspective. Yes, he, he was the only prophet of Yahweh on Mount Carmel. But how did that go? How did that turn out? Elijah wasn't really standing alone up there, was he? Fire came down from the sky. Fire came down from God and showed everyone there that Yahweh is the one true God and that he is God's prophet. And now here on Mount Horeb, how does God respond to Elijah's self-pity? By literally showing up. By, by allowing Elijah to be one of two prophets ever to see his glory pass by. But I hope you heard this. Even that doesn't change Elijah's warped perspective. God asks him the same question a second time. What are you doing here, Elijah? He just has shown himself to Elijah, asked him the same question. And Elijah is so consumed with self-pity, he answers exactly the same way, word for word. Think about that. He has just seen God. He has seen God. His answer doesn't change. That is self-pity's capacity to corrupt our perspective. We can be talking with the God of heaven and earth, and rather than being overwhelmed, rather than being consumed with his greatness, we can remain consumed with ourselves. Men and women, pay attention to the self-pity that you permit and that you feed in your life. Hunt down the Elijah complex that you find in your soul and kill it, because it will cause you to miss incredible displays of the presence and power of God right before your eyes. It'll cause you to miss it. But the second thing to see here, to recognize here, though our self-pity has great capacity to corrupt our perspective, God has even more capacity to be patient with his people, to deal patiently with us. And so rather than a harsh rebuke, God patiently corrects Elijah. He says, you know what, Elijah, you're actually not the only one left. There are other faithful people and prophets, 7,000 of them. Even in, in the moments that seem the darkest to you, I will always be preserving a faithful remnant. There will always be people who are faithful to me. And then God sends him back. Go, return on your way. God recommissions Elijah for more prophetic work. So Baal worship is not ended yet. God is essentially saying here, but I'm still God. I'm still at work. And even more than that, I actually have work for you to do. Elijah, I have more for you to do. So go back. Go back. This is God's grace and patience for his people, even after we flee, even after we lose heart and perspective, even after we fail to recognize the gift that his presence is with us, God continues to be patient. And he continues to accomplish his work in this world through slow learning and self-consumed and fearful and fleeing people like Elijah and like you and like me. 
So recognize the capacity self-pity has to corrupt your perspective, but recognize even more the capacity God has to deal patiently with you and with his people. Third and finally, we talked about running ahead and running away. Let's talk about running after. Elijah's work, his, his commissioning from God, recommissioning, is to anoint the next regime. Uh, the next group of people that God's going to use to carry his work forward. So there's two kings that he's supposed to anoint and then a prophet to succeed him. And it's here at the end of 1 Kings 19 that we first get to meet the other main character in the series that we're in, Elisha. And when we meet him, he's working his family's land with 12 yoke of oxen, which means he's rich. His family's got money. He's got a lot of land. He's got a lot of livestock. Elijah passes by him and casts his mantle or his cloak on Elijah's back, on Elisha's back. It's a symbolic gesture that's inviting him to follow. And as we read there, Elisha immediately leaves the oxen and runs after Elijah. So we're supposed to actually see here a a, a big contrast. After Mount Carmel, Elijah never quite runs the same way. God still loves him. God is still at work in him and through him. But from here on out, Elijah comes across as reluctant, not particularly eager, not particularly zealous like he was before. Elisha, on the other hand, runs after. He has the zeal. He has the energy that Elijah seems to have lost. And he asks for this moment to go back and to say goodbye to his father and mother. And just as we would start to wonder as the readers, if he's hesitating, maybe he's not going to go, he then kills the oxen, uses the wood of their yokes to start a fire, makes a barbecue pit out of it, throws a feast for the people of the village. I mean, he literally burns the bridges behind him. There's no going back for Elisha. So to keep the, the running metaphor going, this is the moment that Elijah begins to pass the baton to Elisha. One exhausted, one weary runner is starting to hand off the prophetic work to a fresh runner, one who will run after. We'll talk more about Elijah and Elisha in the coming weeks, but the key to really understanding what's happening here comes in the meaning of these two prophets' names. So Elijah means the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And accordingly, up to this point, God has been using Elijah to establish that truth that yes, he, Yahweh, is the one true God. Baal is nothing, only Yahweh is God. Elisha's name, however, means God saves. God saves. You see, for us, it's not enough to simply establish this truth that Yahweh is God. We need his rescue. We need his salvation. Even if we know and believe that he is God, we are like Elijah. We're those like Elijah who over-realize and run ahead of his timing. We're those who, like Elijah, get fearful and run away. And so in our sin, in our brokenness, in our weakness, we need a God who will run after us. Elisha is the prophet who runs after Elijah. But we're meant to see in his life, in his ministry, that there's another prophet coming and that this prophet will run after us. Just like Elisha, the name Jesus means God saves, the Lord saves. As the angel says to Joseph so many years later, you shall call his name Jesus. Why? For he will save his people from their sins. And friends, the person and work of Jesus Christ is God running after you and me, entering into this world that's been corrupted by our sin, refusing in his earthly life and ministry to run ahead and establish a political kingdom on earth, 
refusing to run away from the suffering and the shame of the cross. Unlike Elijah, Jesus actually did stand alone. He was alone. He stood with no one else with him, forsaken even by God for the sin of the world. It is not enough for God to establish himself as the one true God. He must be the God who saves. And thanks be to him, Jesus Christ is him saying, I save, I have done just that. And so church, let us, in whatever this means for your life and your role and the calling God has given to you, let us run with endurance the race that is marked out for us. Neither running ahead of God or running away from him, let us fix our eyes on the author and the perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ. Today, may you lift your eyes and see that he is the God who saves and that he is running after you. Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord God, we ask now by the power of your spirit that you would give us strength to live out this message that we've heard today. We confess that we are those who run ahead. We overrealize your kingdom. And we hurt ourselves and we hurt other people when we do that. We run away from you in fear even though we know better, even though we've seen you show up in power. Our self-pity consumes us and makes us miss incredible displays of your work right in front of us. Forgive us for that and show us again even now as we prepare to come to your table. You are the God who runs after us. You are the one who entered into this world for us. Pray that we would lift our eyes and see you and see your pursuit of us, see your running after us today. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.